Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for the truth that's conveyed in the words of that hymn. We thank you for the power that is uh, driven through the, uh, the chords and the notes. Thank you, Father, for the fact that it is indeed your grace, your might, your power that is our fortress regardless of what we might face in our world, in our lives, day by day, moment by moment. So now, Father, we just continue to give this time of worship to you, knowing that every aspect from the singing to the time of quiet to the prayer to the teaching to the giving of tithes and offerings all gather together for an expression of worship, for you alone are worthy. Pray, Father, for uh, Michael now as he shares what you have uh, led him as far as his preparation and the teaching. Pray that your spirit would just uh, open our own hearts and our minds, that we would, by your power, be able to block out uh, the affairs, the issues, the matters, the concerns of the week, that we could just allow you to speak through us, that we would hear what you have intended so that we might live lives fully to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And again, you have not entered the twilight zone this morning. Though you may think that after singing. And, um, it is, again, it's good to see each and every one of you this morning. And uh, just thankful that uh, we have an opportunity together as a as a body of believers and, and worship God together. Um, one of the last lines of that song, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. And, and Martin Luther, who penned those words, um, knew very well the reality of that truth, the body they may kill. Uh, he was not, as some of his predecessors and some of those who followed him, um, he was not killed, though he was spent lots of his time running and hiding, it seems. Um, but he understood the meaning of those words uh, probably far more than, than we do in, in our fairly protected culture that we live in. So as we continue to, to worship, just let, let that sink in as well. Uh, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 2 this morning. Uh, in just a moment, we'll read uh, verses 8 through 15. If you want to be turning there, there is an outline in the bulletin for you to follow along if you need one. I've never been in the military, but I have been told by several people who have that a soldier's worst nightmare is not to be killed, but to be captured. Because capture means torture. Capture means um, ultimately hopelessness, maybe even wishing that you were dead. And so for a soldier to be captured, there's this life that, that if they're not careful, kind of gets sucked out of them. Well, that's what Paul is talking about this morning, but in a, a spiritual sense, because we are all in a battle, as we sang, and we are all in danger of being captured every moment of every day. That's his concern this morning as we read verses 8 through 15 is that we would avoid being captured, but instead we would put up the defense of being captivated 
by Christ. And so as we read, I want you to to look for, number one, what is the warning that he's asking us to be careful of? And then, as he asks us to be captivated by something else, I want you to notice that he wants us to be captivated by the person of Christ. He wants us to be captivated by our security in Christ. And he wants us to be captivated by our status because of Christ. So would you follow along as we read again Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8 through verse 15. Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him, that is Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank You again for Your Word. I pray now that You would um, speak to our hearts, again, speak to our minds and and speak to our wills that we may hear and obey. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And Phil, I don't have my clicker, so if, if you can figure out where I'm going, that would be great. And if not, we'll confuse them even more. Okay? <laughs> a couple weeks ago, we talked about in verse 4, he, Paul gave us a warning, and he says, I say this so no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Well, now he's up the ante. In verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. He's concerned because people are being taken captive, not physically, but spiritually. They're buying into something. They're being deceived. And then all of a sudden they find themselves going, oh, I'm stuck. I'm in trouble. And that, that captivation, that being held captive, comes from things of the world and the traditions of men. Let me give you a couple of examples, one rather silly and one rather serious. When I was in high school, I was in love, as most high school boys are, with cars. But not just any cars, fast cars. Uh, I knew which ones would go from zero to 60, how fast, and my favorite was uh, a Porsche 911 could go from zero to 60 in about five and a half seconds. There were some that were faster than that, but there were none as cool as that. The problem is I didn't have one. Never saw a real one. Never owned one. Instead, I owned a car like that. It's called a, it's called a Ford Futura. Uh, and my Ford Futura would go from zero to 60 in about three miles. Literally. We lived about three and a half miles outside of town. And it would take me almost to the house to get up to the speed limit. Uh, in fact, 
one time I was in town and got pulled over and the cop said you were speeding. And I think it was just the, the look of disbelief on my face. This car can't get to 35 in town from that light to where you pulled me over. It's just not possible. And so he didn't give me a ticket. I just don't think it was possible that I could have been speeding in that car. But it was, <laughs> wasn't that one, but it was yellow like that. It looked like that. But I was captivated by cars. And that Porsche 911 made me a little bitter that I drove that. It, it consumed me to want something different. That's a silly example, but we all face that on a regular basis. Things that we just kind of get caught up in. Um, our culture uses another uh, example of that. The word love. Our culture has redefined that through books and movies and TV. That love really is, is an emotion. And therefore, there's a, we are raising a generation of people who have forsaken marriage and said, I'm just going to live with someone or bounce from person to person because it's all about emotion. And when that emotion goes away, then I don't really must not love them anymore. So it's perfectly acceptable to move on. And what that is, is that's that worldly philosophy that Paul talks about in eight, those elementary principles of the world. Let me give you a definition of worldly philosophy. It oftentimes takes a biblical truth and redefines it or twists it a little bit and makes it something different. There's a biblical definition of love and it's called uh, commitment. It's called covenant. And the world has taken that and said, no, I don't really need a piece of paper because I just, I just love this person. But that love is based on emotion. It's based on excitement. It's based on thrill. It's based on newness. And when those things go away, what we end up with, as Paul says, empty deception. It looks full, but it's not really. It's, it's empty. It doesn't hold for us what it needs to. And that's what we mean by worldly philosophy. We take a biblical truth and we just kind of tweak it a little bit. The other thing that he says that we're deceived by is, in verse 8, <clears throat> according to the tradition of men. And what tradition does is it takes something good, it takes biblical truth, and it puts a form to it. We do it all the time in the church with music, for example. Um, when I was growing up, every Sunday we sang songs just like what we sang this morning. And the pastor wore just like what I'm wearing today. He still preached the Word, but the form in which he did that looked different. The form in which we worshipped was hymns and an organ. I really don't like organs very much, but that was the form we did. We use, normally on Sunday mornings, we have a different form at Christ Community Church. We normally have someone playing a guitar, occasionally a harmonica, sometimes the piano as well. Sometimes the, I'm going to call it a bongo drum, but maybe it's called something else. I don't know. Sometimes we do that, right? We have a form that goes around the essential and necessary reality of worship. The Bible speaks of singing. The Bible says those who are filled with the Spirit will encourage one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. We read that God accepts music as worship. 
So the truth, the biblical truth, we should sing as a body gathered. When we encapsulate that in a form, hymns, organ, piano, guitar, sitting in a circle, someone leading, lots of people leading, a choir, that becomes a tradition. Nothing wrong with tradition unless the tradition becomes so mingled with the spiritual truth that we lose sight of which is which. Let me give you a litmus test to see whether that's happening in your life and how you can tell if that's happening in your life. If you go to church, or even this morning you come here and you leave going, I had a hard time worshiping because I'm not used to singing hymns, then it could be you're in danger of of merging the biblical truth of the need to worship through song and the form. And all that form is is a tradition. Nothing wrong with the tradition unless it begins to usurp the biblical truth. If you come here on a Sunday morning and you leave going, I had a hard time worshiping because I didn't really like the songs that we sang, or we sang a bunch of new songs and it was hard to worship. Nothing wrong with that, but just be aware that you are allowing a form to intrude on the biblical truth. And we have to, as believers, work really hard in training our minds to not get so caught up in the form that we lose the ability to worship regardless of the culture that we find ourselves in. Because if God calls you somewhere else and God calls you into a different church that does things differently than we do them here and you find yourself frustrated, then that's an issue with form overcoming the point. Does that make sense? We, we really need to think hard about all the different forms. If it bothers you that I'm wearing a suit this morning, it's just a form. Right? These chairs in a row are just a form. The fact that I stand up on a stage is just a form. If we had a pulpit, I would have brought that up here too. That's a form. What's been true since the beginning of the church is the proclamation of the Word. That's looked different in a lot of different places over the centuries. And it looks different today in lots of different parts of the world. And so one of the things that we need to be careful to do as believers is, are we caught up in the form or are we willing to think hard about, am I worshiping because God is worthy to worship or am I worshiping because I like the way we do things? Nothing wrong with preferences. I have preferences. We went to a church uh, when we lived in Northeast Texas that used a, uh, an organ and I hated the organ and they played it slow. All the songs were just it's like, they had the, the joy, 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 joy down deep in their heart. I just wanted a little more excitement. But I learned, God taught me the true meaning of worship because I, I had to force myself to think about the words that we sang. I had to force myself to think about the one I was singing to because it was easy to get caught up in, I don't like the way this is being done. So if you show up in church and you feel uncomfortable or things that don't seem quite right sometimes, let that be a prick in your spirit of, where's my focus? So Paul warns us not to get captive, not to become captured by 
philosophy. Again, philosophy is taking a biblical truth and tweaking it or redefining it. Or by the tradition of men. That's, again, taking an essential element of what we do and putting a form on it that's culturally significant. So what should we do instead? Well, he gives us three things that we should do instead, as we talked about at the beginning. Number one, we should be captivated by the person of Christ. We should be captivated by our security in Christ. And we should be captivated by our status because of Christ. Look with me at verse 9. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. There are two things about the person of Christ He wants us to know. Number one, He is fully God. If you've heard that before in this series on Colossians, that's not by mistake. Paul repeats himself, and he's going to repeat himself, because these truths are important. Right? It's easy to become captivated by those things of the world that are temporal, that fade away, that pass away. But Christ, the one that we serve, is fully God. Which is rather overwhelming because He came to dwell with us. John says. He came to tabernacle with us, to, to set up a tent with us. How many of you been camping before? Been camping? Right, when you go camping with people, it's not the Hilton. Right? You, you learn what people are like. You see them when they're dirty. Right? You, you know how they behave when things... Has anything ever gone wrong when you've gone camping? That's required, right? And you learn about how people relate to things when they go wrong. Right? Jesus tabernacled with us. He came and, and went camping with us, so to speak, if we can be rough about that. Because He loved us. And He didn't go, not going camping with those folks again. He stayed. And He died for us. The God of the universe, the creator of all that we see, chose to hang out with us and then die for us. And that should captivate us, not the things of the world. The second thing about His person, look at the end of verse 10. He is head over all rule and authority. We should be captivated by the authority of this one. Bob Dylan saying, you're going to serve somebody right? You are. You're going to serve something or somebody. Why not the one who is actually the head over everything? Let's go back to that marriage example for a moment. The people who say, I don't want the piece of paper. I don't want to sign that covenant because I just love. That's all that's important is I love. It's an emotion. It's a thrill. It's an excitement. They're serving that emotion. They're a slave to that emotion because when it goes away, they will necessarily look for it somewhere else. They're addicted to it. They have to have it. I can't just love someone freely because I love them. I can only love someone if they're meeting my needs. We're going to talk a lot more about marriage in a few weeks as we get to the end of chapter 3 in Colossians. Um, but just a, a teaser about that. The way the world defines marriage and love and, and what that looks like is not even remotely biblical. And they're enslaved to that emotion. <clears throat> and if you're going to be enslaved to somebody, and you will be, and you are, why not make it the one who is head and rule over everything? So, first, we should be captivated by 
the person of Christ because He's fully God and because He has supreme authority over everything. Second, we should be captivated by Christ because in Him we have our security. We have our security. Look at the beginning of verse 10. It says, In Him you've been made complete. Some of your versions may say, have been made full. That may be a, a better word. We have all that we need in Christ. If you are looking to your spouse to fulfill your needs, you will be disappointed. If you are looking to your friends to fulfill your needs, you will be disappointed. If you're looking to the church, if you're looking to me to fulfill your needs, you will be disappointed. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have high expectations for me as your pastor. That you shouldn't have a relationship with your spouse where you are meeting each other's needs. I want to say something that's hard. It was hard for me, and I'm still digesting this. When you're disappointed by someone, what that ultimately means is you're not being completely satisfied in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean people aren't going to disappoint us. People are. People are going to hurt our feelings. People are going to say things when we go, I can't believe they did that. But when we dwell on that, when that consumes us, when we, when we really just go, oh, it hurts. We realize that we're part of the fall. We realize that we haven't seen Him face to face. And we realize that Christ is not everything He should be to me. Granted, He's not going to be everything He should be to you on this side of eternity. So there's a tension there. Right? What I'm not saying is, you're failing as a Christian if someone hurts your feelings. <laughs> what I'm saying is, that's the reality of where we live. But the truth, the spiritual truth is that Christ is everything for you. And the more we grasp that, the more we realize that, the more we hold on to that, the less likely it is that people wound us deeply. Don't misunderstand me. People do wound us deeply, and we carry those for a long time because we live in a fallen world. But it's a reality that we've not yet seen Jesus face to face. And may it be a, may it be a driving, something that drives us to hunger and thirst for Him more. When we're wounded, when we're hurt, when we're disappointed, may it turn our, our eyes to God because... He is our fullness, and in that should be some security. The second thing that we are secure in, notice in verse 11, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Paul is, is referring back to an Old Testament idea. God made a covenant with Abraham, and then He asked Abraham to make a covenant with him, and He asked him to circumcise himself and all the males in his family, and every Jew did that throughout history. What it was, was a sign that you are part of God's family. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, what you realize is, is though God's family, those people, they were horrible. They were disobedient. They were rebellious. They were hateful. They ignored God. They snubbed God. And yet, because He had made a covenant with them, He continued to love them. He continued to pursue them. He continued to woo them. 
so much so that He eventually sent His only Son to die for them. And the amazing part of that verse, verse 11 is, Paul says, now those of you who believe in Christ, those of you who have given your life to Christ, who've changed allegiance, you're part of that family. You're part of that same group of people that God is going to continue to pursue and love and woo for eternity. There should be security in that. That should captivate you. That should capture your attention. Paul is saying you are now part of God's people, that same people that He never forsook. You can be secure in that. The third thing that we can be secure in is our identity with Christ. Verse 12, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith and the working of God who raised Him from the dead. That idea of baptism, we become believers, we submit to baptism. In this church, we, we like to put people under. It's a good picture of what happens spiritually. We died with Christ... And we have been raised to walk in newness of life. What it says is, I'm identifying with Christ and God accepts that. He accepts that identification and says, yeah, you have died with Christ and I'm going to raise you up because I raised Christ up. In fact, he says in Ephesians that that we are, past tense, seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Again, as we've said before, this doesn't feel like heaven right here. I mean, I love you. You're nice. I appreciate it. I love being here. But this isn't heaven. But Paul says in Ephesians, we're seated with Him in the heavenly places. We, when we become believers, we're so identified with Christ that that should be your security. God looks at His church and He sees the bride of Christ, and he sees them already joined together, we can't separate those things. And that should captivate you. I am, you are secure in Christ. And then finally, the last thing that should captivate us is that we have a a different status because of Christ. Look at verse 13. You were dead in your transgressions. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you were sinful and you weren't part of God's people. But in the middle of verse 13, He made you alive together with them. Your status has changed from death to life. You're a different person. You have a new status. You were dead spiritually. Now you are alive. How did He do that? having forgiven us all our transgressions. We have a new status. We were guilty. Now we're forgiven. We were condemned. Now we've been set free. We have a new status. That should captivate you. But we're still in debt, right? Isn't there something that needs to happen? Don't don't I have to... Don't I need to do something, God, to, to pay for that forgiveness? There's no. Verse 14, He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us 
which was hostile to us. I take that not only just as the Old Testament, but God's very character. We offended God's character by our actions, by our thoughts, by our very predisposition. Who we were was an offense to God. We were sinful human beings. And He said He canceled out that debt. How did He do that? He took it out of the way. He nailed it to the cross. Wait, I I thought Jesus was nailed to the cross. Yeah. That offense, our rebellion, our hatred of God, our, our complete, utter inability and lack of desire to do anything to please God was put on Christ on the cross and He bore the wrath of God which was intended for us. Our debt was nailed to the cross. And then Paul comes full circle and he ties it back to that authority issue at the very beginning in verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and He made a public display of them. That word public display means almost like public ridicule. It's what Joseph didn't do to Mary when he found out she was pregnant. He could have brought her before the town and said, She's cheated on me. And whether they would have stoned her or not, I don't know. In that culture, they seem to be sometimes lax in those things. But she certainly would have been shunned for the rest of her life. And Joseph had the authority to do that. But he chose not to. Well, Jesus did that to all the other ruling principalities, all the other authorities in the world. He's made a public display of them, a a public spectacle. He's ridiculed them publicly. I am king and you're not. I am in charge and you're not. You're a lesser God. And you have no authority. You have no ability to come before my people and cast blame. And then he triumphed over them through him. Again, that triumph is a a military parade where a conquering general would come through and, and lead his prisoners captive. If you're ever worried that you've got an enemy who's after you, you do, but he's already been chained and bound and being led through the streets and said, there's someone over him. And that should captivate us. That should capture our attention more than those things of the world. That should make us hunger and thirst after the one who's leading that parade our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's so easy in our world to be caught up with those things that catch our eye. Because this world is really good at throwing up things in front of us that catch our eye, that sound good. Stuff. Relationships. material possessions. But none of that, none of that compares to the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the brilliance that is our Lord and Savior. Because He is fully God. He is the authority over all that we see. He's made us secure by bringing us into His family, by choosing to identify with us. 
And he's changed us. He's made us alive. He's forgiven us. He's canceled out our debt. So would you, not only this morning, but tomorrow and the next day and the next day, begin to think, how can I put away those things that have captivated me in the past that maybe have captured you, maybe you are captured now by some of those things, by incorrect philosophies, by tradition that you just hold on to? Will you begin thinking how you can put those away? And will you begin thinking how you can be captivated by Christ? As we've talked about the metaphor we've been using, are you thinking outside the box? Do you have all these things that captivate you, whatever those things may be? Or are you planting yourself firmly in the box, the grace of God in truth? And are you delighting in your Savior? Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your, your word and thank you for the truth that is in it. But most of all, God, thank you for your son. <clears throat> the one in whom we have life. The one in whom we have joy and peace. The one in whom we have security. The one in whom we have been changed and made new. So, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would make us aware of where we have chosen to be captivated and captured by those things that are lesser gods. And as we go through our week, God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and that we would um, come to love you more and more and be captured by who you are. God, we look forward to what you will do in and through us. And God, we look forward to that day when we will see you face to face and be like you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.